Hello, and welcome to the Burning Castle podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rinsberg. Each episode, I speak with a changemaker learning to unlock the creative potential of a world caught in chaos. These are the artists, actors, performers, musicians, designers, thinkers, entrepreneurs, filmmakers, activists, chefs, and countless others creating new paths amid crumbling institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Burning Castle and on Instagram at Burning Castle Podcast. In this episode, I speak with novelist David Liss, who is famously the author of The Coffee Trader and recently released The Peculiarities. David takes you to times and places you probably haven't been, like 17th century Amsterdam for The Coffee Trader, and puts you right there in these places that are brimming with life and vitality. In this interview, we dive deep into the writing process, including how David taught himself how to structure a novel and where that's brought him today. I hope you enjoy the interview. Uh, so David List, thank you for joining me here on the Burning Castle podcast. Um, I just want to like kind of lay the table a little bit for people listening. Um, and I can't even really do a proper and thorough job that I should, but I, I can say one thing, which is that the coffee trader is um, is the one of the the only one of your books that I've read cover to cover right now because I'm just getting into it. I'm a latecomer to David List, but that book is in my piece a masterpiece, it, it, in my opinion, as a masterpiece. It, it is a book that does something so rare, which is take a genre, kind of embrace it fully, and turn it completely upside down um, by doing something unexpected and and giving you an experience that kind of just is unexpected and sparkles and is every time you go to it is a bit of a thrill right up until the end. So that to me is just a great book and it's inspired me to move on to the rest of your work, um, which includes the Benjamin Weaver series and uh, your latest book, but we'll get to all that. Um, Now that I've kind of done that sort of as adequately as I can right now, I want to just jump into hearing about who you are, where you are, where you've come from, and a little bit about the journey that, that you're, you've been on, that you're still on. Okay, um, well, thank you for having me on. Uh, I'm, uh, so I'm a full-time writer. I've been a novelist for 20 years. I've written, I think, um, 14 novels at this point. Um, I also dabble in other media. I've written comics. I'm currently working in the gaming industry. Um, I'm somebody who just really loves narrative. I love consuming narrative and I love producing it. Um, Most of my novels have some sort of uh, connection to Jewish history, at least the historical novels. Um, I'm also very interested in economic history and labor history. Those are issues that show up a lot in in my fiction. Um, Basically, um, my background was uh, I was getting a PhD in 18th century British literature when I decided I wanted to uh, take what I thought then was one last shot at trying to write a novel, which was something I'd always wanted to do, and ended up turning my my dissertation research into my first book, which was called The Conspiracy of Paper. And uh, my my research was uh, very much on the... um, how the origins of the English novel coincided with the origins of certain kinds of modern financial activities. Mm-hmm. And I was very much interested in the intersection of narrative, uh, storytelling, and how we as individuals in what was emerging as the modern world understand ourselves as financial beings. Mm-hmm. And I'd also always been interested in, um, in Jewish history and some uh, some of the aspects of my dissertation research dealt with how Jews were perceived and portrayed in the 18th century British novel. And so all of that came together mm-hmm. uh, with my first book. And then I've more or less with lots of detours been on that path ever since. So, you know, it's, there's that question, which is why, why did you allow yourself to veer into something that is so, unknown and so risky, especially when it's compared to an ac- academic career, which, you know, is not exactly always a glamorous thing, but the path is fairly laid, well laid out ahead of you, where in fiction, it's, I would think, 
even from what I've personally experienced, completely the opposite. You're just groping book to book and there's no notion of what might happen or what could happen. So what was that moment that got you to, to make that commitment and to really step off of the path that you were on and onto this other one that is fiction? Well, I, I think it... Um... I think you really overstate the stability of an academic career. I think once you're mm. on the tenure track, um, it is it, it is very stable as long as you produce. Right. It can be very hard to get one of those jobs. It's um it's even harder now than it was then. And uh, when my my wife, who I met in graduate school and who was at the same stage of the program I was in, when she applied for her, her jobs, she was usually one of about 800 people applying for a job, hmm. and I was lying awake at night in bed, unable to sleep, worrying that I would get a job. And, and that's how I, I, I knew that maybe it wasn't the right career path for me. I loved being in graduate school. I loved the kind of uh, rigorous academic training I got, which really did rewire my brain. It really did teach me how to think about things in a whole new way. It did everything that, that a humanities education is supposed to do. But as I was coming through the other end, I knew it wasn't really how I wanted to spend my time. Mm. Um, I'd always I'd always loved writing. I'd always loved reading. And I'd had this idea in the back of my head that I would write a novel if I could. But the fact that I hadn't was evidence that I couldn't. <laughs> and I eventually decided I was going to um, to make a concerted effort to really think about how novels work to read novels and sort of take them apart and, and, and try and understand them structurally, um, mm -hmm. what a novel was doing when it was successful and what it was doing when it was unsuccessful, and then uh, to learn from it. And I essentially taught myself to write using that method and um, proceeded from there. And I did it in my spare time. Uh, so I, 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 was, um, I was using the semester schedule. So I wrote my first novel essentially in two uh, winter breaks and a summer break mm. and then wow. and then uh, as I after the second winter break and I was moving to the semester I thought well you know I'm really close so maybe I'll cheat and um, and try and finish it and and that's ultimately what I did. So there's really something I want to hear about which is how you learn about breaking apart a novel understanding the structure understanding how to create your version of the novel, the novel you want to write using those structures. But before I, before we dive into that, I want to go back a little even before your graduate studies and, you know, even before undergrad and like where you came from and what put you in this place that you were attached to books, to the written word, maybe to the spoken word, I don't know. But, you know, where were you in life? Because I know where I know I, in, in my own story, it was a lot of um, being uprooted, um, a lot of immigration and migration with my family, a lot of being in new places. And for me, going up to the corner of the house and, and being with books, being with a library as it goes over time was just the most reaffirming thing. So where did you come from into that process? Where were you living um, as a kid? And you know what, just what got you... Um, into thinking about English literature and and especially the intersection of economics, um, yeah, that's the question. Okay, um, sure. So I grew up in South Florida, um, mm. and Florida is perhaps the strangest and, uh, for me, least appealing place you can you can grow up. <laughs> um, although I take that back, I think there are certainly worse places in the United States. But Ve Vegas um, over here for five years. <laughs> But um, I, you know, I, I, you know, one of my earliest memories is just, you know, reading and, and, and writing. So I've mm -hmm. always, I, there is something just organic about narrative that appeals to me. But, you know, at the, at the risk of, you know, telling a kind of miserable sob story, I, I had a really unhappy childhood. I was just very unhappy where I was. I always mm -hmm. felt like I didn't quite belong in this world. Uh, South Florida at the time was really undergoing a very strange transformation in that it um, it had been uh, this the, the sort of you know very very southern very rural place and mm -hmm. it was becoming um, much more urban and suburban and right. being repopulated by uh, people largely from the Northeast and there was a disproportionate number of that 
um, repopulation that was Jewish. And so it had a large Jewish presence um, so to the point where you know, my schools would be off for the major Jewish holidays, but we were still a, a minority. There was still a, a lot of rampant and visible and undisguised anti-Semitism. Mm. Um, and it was a difficult place to be. And, be, and because I liked books, because I liked stories, uh, books and film and television and comics, you know, all of these things were, were my escape. So, I mean, it, it's such an interesting, interesting thing to talk and think about Florida and South Florida, because it really is quite a unique place um, in, in so many ways. I mean, you have, like you're saying, this overwhelming Jewish population in pockets. And then you also have this Floridian dystopia that like this Harmony Cormine thing where you're like, what the hell is going on in Florida? I remember um, Dr. Drew and Adam Carolla, when they, when they did Loveline, the famous radio show, they used to play a game called um, Austria or Florida or Germany or Florida. I'm not sure which. It, was, it might've been Germany or Florida. And they'd read a headline of something incredibly disturbing and absurd and grotesque that happened in the news. And you'd have to guess where, whether that took place in Florida or Germany. And that was kind of, I mean, I, and I've also been to Florida and seen the beauty and seen the, uh, what an amazing place it is. And you have so, so many different facets of, of that place. Um, you know, but you felt, as you're saying, you felt that it wasn't yours, that you didn't belong there. And so you ended up um, in New York. Yes. And, and I think because you, you see New York so much in film and on television, that that might be part of it. But the first time I went to New York City, I thought, you know, this is the place I've always wanted to be. Mm. Um, it felt wow. really familiar. And I'm not sure how much of it was just me um, liking that kind of urban environment and how much I, yeah. I simply absorbed uh, from narrative. But, uh, you know, I was very happy in New York. I think it's a great place to live when yeah. you're young. Uh, yeah. When I go back now and visit, I think, how does anyone live here? I think I've, <laughs> I've just gotten too used to the idea of being able to drive my car to the supermarket and buy right. as many groceries as I want. <laughs> that right. The, right. The hardship of New York is uh, seems a little bit unbearable to me, but I loved it when I lived there, and and yeah. and it was hard to leave. Um, and I got a lot out of it when when I was there. Yeah, I I've had a love affair with New York. Um, started when I was fifteen. After growing up in at that time, San Diego. And to go from San Diego, which is a nice place, but a bit placid, a bit, you know, it's San Diego. You show up in New York City never having seen that, and you feel that energy on the street and the smells, the cigarette, the smoke, the steam, uh, the bookstores, the book culture. And that was something so alien for, for me. I mean, we, obviously, there are good bookstores in San Diego and people love to read, but it's not a book culture that you feel is something you could actually reach out and touch the way you can by going to the Strand or, you know, McNally Jackson or whatever else. So that, that was always to me such an important part of it, um, that book culture. So you know, back to you, you're at Columbia, you decide to take this divergent path, um, you finish writing the book and you somehow get it published, your first book, it becomes your debut novel and not something that ended up in a drawer. So how did that work out? And what was that process like where you got that book out into the world, which is a very big deal, no matter, no matter what age or who you are? Yeah, you know, it, it, it did not seem fast at the time, but looking back, I realized how, how quickly uh, the process went. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I went through the standard thing that, that uh, authors do, which is you write, um, you need an agent, so you write what's called a query letter to try and get an agent interested, mm -hmm. and uh, you get responses, everything from, you know, it sounds interesting, but it's not for me, to, you know, literally no one will ever buy this book. <laughs> um, a classic. And, and and what I've um, what I've come to realize over the years, and what I always tell aspiring writers, is mm. that you can't take rejection to heart because people yeah. are not judging your project on whether or not it's good. They're judging it on whether or not it's for them. Yeah. So they're not looking yeah. for a book they want to read. They're looking for a book they want to marry. It really has to be um, something that they feel deeply passionate about for them to take it on. But of course, at the time. Uh, every rejection feels like, like you know, um, somebody deter deciding that this book does not deserve to, to be in the world. 
Uh, but I ended up finding a, a terrific agent, mm -hmm. you know, relatively quickly within, I would say, two months, I think. And, um, you know, she helped me edit it a little bit, get it ready for market mm -hmm. and uh, sent it out. And um, we had we had offers uh, right away. We had a number of offers. And, and because I was in New York at the time, I had this really just surreal experience of going around uh, with my agent to publishers, meeting with editors, and having to take the stance of, tell me why I should let you publish my book, which was, of course, insane. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I ended up really clicking with one of the editors. And, and in terms of money, it came down to something very similar with another editor. But uh, I ended up going with somebody at Random House who, you know, he, he was a Jewish guy about my age. He was a Mets fan. I felt like he was somebody who mm -hmm. I could just, you know, talk to and... Um, and have a relationship with and mm -hmm. uh and that's how i got started yeah it you know it's a story that kind of reminds me of um a story i learned from another episode of this podcast with mark Demai, who is a french musician platinum um platinum selling musician in france who has a band called cocoon and he was saying when he got into music he put out a few tracks online in the early 2000s and some record uh a people acquisitions people heard it and then just signed him and that was that and he just now had a record deal and was now a rock star overnight and you you know that's that's these are the exceptional stories when you're dealing with um creative products you know when you when you're talking about someone who's trying to break through into literature to music or art whatever else the, those are stories that I think people have in their minds as the ideal or the idyllic, like, I'll just get it out there and the, they're going to be bidding for my stuff. And then it's a lot of disappointment. But I think what what people miss is that, like with Mark Domai and, and perhaps with you, you can tell us, even after that point, it's not a straight line. You're still dealing with, as you kind of alluded to earlier, the detours that will inevitably arise. So, you know, so just give us a little perspective on what what happens after. I mean, that book that you that you wrote and published is the one I'm currently reading, and um, it is a conspiracy of paper. It's kind of it's a little bit stunning to think that was a first book, a first work, you know, because it's that good. It's that immediate and it's that interesting and funny and connected so deeply to this remote time and place, um, but so intimately and so in a, such a familiar way. So, you know, there's that you had this massive launch energy, but then what happens next? And what were those detours that you were talking about? Well, it, you know, the, there, there are elements of marketing that you have to think about. You have to consider how you want to be uh, in the world and what kind of career you want to have. Mm -hmm. And so when I was starting to think about my next project, my editor, my agent both said, you need to write a sequel. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, my agent or my editor in particular really wanted it to be called a conspiracy of something else. He wanted to have right. that, that right. kind of franchise. And, and I, I absolutely did not want to do that. Um, I wanted to do something different and I wanted to be able to write whatever I wanted whenever I wanted, and which I realized is not maybe a realistic way to plan a career, but it's what I did. Um, with me, what that meant was as I as I had been in grad school and spending years and years and years studying 18th century Britain, uh, 18th century Britain was always looking over its shoulder at the Netherlands in the 17th century as a model. And I'd always thought if I ever had time, I'd love to know more about 17th century uh, Netherlands and, and Amsterdam in particular. Mm. And so I decided that's what I wanted to do for my second book. I would write a book um, set in Amsterdam in the 17th century and just began a kind of research project with no goal of just reading about uh, this time in this place and trying to find a story. Um, and I did that for maybe four months and still had no story uh, until I, I started widening the circle of what I was reading. And I ended up reading uh, Ferdinand Braudel's uh, three volume history of uh, capitalism, which mm. is a just surprisingly delightful uh, <laughs> a project. It really is just Sounds about, it. you know, it's, it's just material history and it's all what people ate and what they wore and how they furnished wow. their homes and, and wow. where these products came from and how, and how they were transmitted. It's, um, it's a really wonderful project. Mm -hmm. And there was one 
you know, offhand sentence in volume two about the emergence of monopolies on commodities in the 17th century. And I thought immediately, that's what I want to do. I want to write oh, about wow. somebody trying to corner the market on a commodity just as it's first appearing in Europe. Wow. And, and, um, and initially I was focused on chocolate. Uh, the book was going to be about uh, somebody trying to corner the market on chocolate as it emerges, but eventually I decided uh, books about chocolate are often kind of languid and sensual and erotic. And my book was twitchy and edgy and nervous and, mm -hmm. and paranoid. And I thought, this is coffee. I'm writing about coffee. <laughs> um, and so That's I, amazing. Uh, I, I switched it up and that became The Coffee Trader. And I felt like the my first two novels were similar enough that um, the second one could appeal to readers of the first one, but I was also making a statement that I wasn't just going to do the same thing over and over again. Which is an, an amazing choice to make. And is, you know, I think in a lot of cases could be seen as a difficult choice because those offers that you get coming off a, a successful first book, they're strong and they're tempting and there's lots of people that are pulling you toward them for good reasons. Um, but then to do the thing that is really connected to what you're interested in. And I think that's the real point where it's like, you know, people aren't always aware of what they're interested in because they don't explore, they don't, they don't follow the trail long enough to find out. So, you know, that three or four month period of reading uh, of this period is, it sounds like it was the key. It, it was at least that where the, where the lock turned because you came to this real, rather than, you know, I would have assumed you would have started with the coffee because the coffee is so imagistic. It's so connected to senses and it's this great sexy idea in our culture, but you actually didn't. You started with the conceptual notion of this economic shift in a society and what that would mean for an individual who would be the protagonist. And that's exactly what you produced with the coffee trader. We're watching this happen in real time where people waking up to this idea that there, there is this incredibly valuable new commodity on the markets in Amsterdam. And not only that, but this particular individual can, can grab an enormous slice of it. Um, so yeah, it's an incredible book and that's an incredible way to get to that point. Um, and I think the question I have now is the one that I'd mentioned earlier, which is about learning about structure. You know, you said you had this period where you really tried to understand how the a structure of a novel and how it could be built. So how did that fall into this process where you were taking this very conceptual idea and building something out of it? Well, um, really it was, it was very um, ad hoc because what I would do is I would read a novel and just take my temperature constantly. Am I enjoying mm. this? Do I, do I like this character? Um, and not like, as in, I think a lot of readers are, do, do I like this character? As in, do I want to, you know, sit next to this character on a transatlantic flight, but rather like, do I, you know, do I feel like this is a successful character? Mm -hmm. And if the answer was yes, I would go back and fig try and figure out like what what had the writer done to make me care about this character? What what mm -hmm. structurally is happening here um, that I care about what happens next? If I don't like a character, I also try to figure out what was going on with that. If I find a scene interesting or engaging, um, I try to figure out why why I'm in why I'm engaged. What's what's mm -hmm. at work other than uh, you know my as a reader, I really love style. It's the thing I probably respond most to, but beyond style, I would want to know what, um, what sort of narrative elements are make a scene work or, or if I'm bored, why am I bored? Why do I not care what's happening in this book? And I certainly wasn't learning how to write a good novel, but I was learning how to write the kind of novel I like. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that there's any other way to go. I mean, there's Taste is really the most mysterious thing in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, you see all the time that books that are not wildly successful, that are not fantastic, that are not brilliant, will never find an agent and then will never find a publisher. But there are books published all the time that I can't stand. So, mm. but clearly somebody likes them, uh, somebody whose taste is, is completely different than mine. Right. Um, so, so that's what I was just trying to do was to to learn how scenes work, to learn how characters work, and then think about the larger structure um, 
whole chunks of a novel and and the over uh, the overall um, structure from beginning to end. And I essentially reverse engineered books I thought were successful. And could you give us uh, any of those that you remember books that and you would recommend to do that uh, with? You know, they 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 were not. I didn't necessarily you know read. Um, books at the time that I would go on to consider personal favorites. Mm. Um, the one of the things that comes to mind is a um, the novelist named Colin Harrison, who is also an editor, who wrote a number of literary thrillers in the early two thousands. I, I think it's mm. been a while since he's published something, but I really liked uh, not everything about his books, but there was a lot I liked about mm. them, and I really liked how he wrote. Um, what I thought of as small thrillers, which were um, the narrative tension came not from like uh, big things like they mean to kill the president or there's a, right. you know, there's a there's a plot to undermine the election in this country, but mm-hmm. individual lives like my 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 job will be ruined if this thing goes wrong. My marriage right. will be ruined if this thing goes wrong. And, and for me, that's always much more powerful mm-hmm. uh, characters, everything uh, for me as a writer. Uh, what I what I want to produce are characters who who uh, who's, who feel you know pushed and pulled by the world around them, right. and so I remember his books being very uh, influential for me. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me, um, and, and the Coffee Trader had always reminded me. It, it's they're not similar, but they're almost parallel. Of um, Michael Farber's book, The Crimson Petal. And the white, I believe, is called. Yeah, the, he's he's actually one of my favorite writers. Yeah, um, I think he's brilliant. Yeah, he's great, and you know, like like the coffee trader, that book similarly puts you in this completely different place in time, and it doesn't do it um, in broad strokes. That that I feel like is one of those key differences where you're reading in genre sometimes, and you're like. These are all, they're all using the same pieces. It's like Lego. We're just kind of putting mm-hmm. these things together Lego-wise. Um, and it's not, you know, with with Farber's book and and also with The Coffee Trader, you there's a sense that this book is, it belongs to somebody. You, you know what I mean? That it is the product of someone unique and uniquely curious about very certain things um, to produce that level of detail and that level, level of naturalness in, in the realism is just, it's amazing. Um, and, you know, and that also kind of leads me to the next point, which is that you're talking about style. And that's such an interesting thing to hear someone talk about who is coming from a place where, you know, from a genre background, um, but it's in a different understanding of what it means to be not just a genre writer or a liter- literary writer, but to think beyond those, beyond those common conceptions of what a writer needs to be. You know, we're, we're often just given those those guardrails, like literary writers over here, genre writers over mm-hmm. here, and you know, stay away from one another, please. But I feel that is not what people really want. I feel like really great books either explode that division or they they kind of merge it somehow. So you know, the question I'm asking for, to you is that was this an intentional thing for you? Were you thinking like, you know, I, why do I need to? follow these rules and be binary about this choice? Or was it just a product of what you were interested in doing and how you wanted to do it? I, I think it happened organically. When I wrote when I wrote a conspiracy paper, I really felt like I was writing a genre mystery, that this would be a, you know, maybe a paperback original and it and it has many elements of a genre mystery. It starts with a, you know, there's somebody, somebody's dead and you have to figure mm-hmm. out who the murderer is. Right. Um, and when I met my agent for the first time, she said, no, this is a literary novel. Mm. And um, I felt like, okay, I, I officially don't know what any of these terms mean. Then. <laughs> and, um, and, I've, and, and since then, I've really felt a kind of investment in breaking down the boundaries between high culture and low culture and what's literary fiction and what's genre fiction. Now, you mentioned Faber and, and he has uh, two novels that are essentially, they're science fiction. They're not, um, they're not anything other than science fiction, but he gets put in the literary fiction section of a bookstore for no discernible reason other than that's his, that's his brand. Right. Um, and I, right. I certainly don't you know think that's wrong. I don't think it's right. And 
I do think that genre labels are there um, to serve the consumer as much as to serve the publisher um, because readers want to know what they're buying. I think it's a two-way street, but I also just have never liked feeling bound by, by those kinds of labels. Um, I consider a lot of, uh, you know, low culture things to be great. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of genre fiction to be great, and and if it's great writing, that's all. Or even if it's good writing, but a great story. If I'm if I care about it, that's all that matters to me. And um, and I've tried to write uh, the best books I can, and and worry less about how they're going to be categorized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I I do think that um, I think it's a it's kind of a false distinction, and I think it's also this distinction between genre and literary. I think it's almost product of like of how books were were distributed and how they were displayed in bookstores in categories that had to obey certain rules. They're literally in boxes in a shop. Like this is fiction, and if you want to drill down a little bit, this is genre over here, and over here we're going to group all the literary together. So a decision on some level has to be made, and they're just like this one goes this way, this one goes this way. But I think what we're seeing today is that because we're not walking into bo to bookstores anymore um, and looking at the boxes and choosing, oh, this is my box. I'm a literary fiction box guy. Um, but now it's happening through search, through social media, through people talking and gathering. And that sort of changes the calculus a little bit. You know, it's it, it does have, I think it will have an effect because people can find you and more importantly, you as the writer can find them which is a really interesting thing to think about. And, and that's exactly what's happening. I mean, with your book and specifically when I'm saying to people, um, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to be talking with David List. And they're like, oh, okay, David List. And I'm like, yeah, the coffee trader. And, and people are just like, oh, the coffee trader. You know, there there is this kind of um, like myelin underground and in, in the culture of, of books that spread now for whatever reason, maybe that was always the case. But I do think there that literary and genre are merging, the distinctions are dissolving. You know, you look at something like um, The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt, you know, and there's just so much going on there that is taken from all parts of the spectrum. Um, so yeah, that that's, I'm not sure what the question is there, but I really do think it's something that people should be paying attention to. And I, I think within the publishing industry as well, to be finding the people who are crossing over. And it's also, you know, when it's also true that once a book is out in the world, how it's perceived in terms of genre can change as well. So um, I just mm -hmm. published a novel called The Peculiarities, which I thought was historical fantasy. But mm -hmm. once it was out in the world, people seemed to think it was horror. And I said, oh, OK, <laughs> I, I, um, I can see why you would say that. I'm not going to disagree with it, but that's not what I had in mind when I wrote it. And mm -hmm. and if it pushes buttons for people who like that kind of fiction and that's how they want to see it. I have, I have no problem with that. Um, you know, but um, but more and more, I think readers are empowered to make those kinds of uh, label decisions for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And uh, on the topic of the peculiarities, which is your book, I believe it was came out last month, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Um, I just, I, I, I saw the cover, which is incredible. And I feel like people, if they're just listening to this, need to like, go look at this cover. Cause it's awesome. Um, but I want to read a little blurb that I found on, I think it's on the publisher's website, which really just makes you want to like jump at this book. And so this is from uh, grimdark magazine, which says the peculiarities is an adventure of unraveling cons conspiracies, exposing London's most hidden secrets and witnessing the unexplainable. It's Terry Pratchett satire mixed into a darker version of Alice in Wonderland. You're like, whoa, I mean, could we get a better quote for a book than that? It's It sounds amazing. Um, Victorian London, which to me is such a fascinating, it's a fascinating, society to try to understand, to try to understand who these people were, what what Victorian society really was, because we are presented with such romanticized, sterilized um, views of it. 
And the, this just sounds like something amazing and something that really meets the mark of what we're just talking about, which is getting rid of the boundaries, getting rid of the categories, not thinking about staying in your, your proverbial lane, but just doing the thing you're doing. So just give a little bit of a background on how this book came to be, what, what got you to the concept of the ideas behind it, um, and why London? Well, so one of the things I've always been interested in since I was a teenager is uh, historical magic as it was practiced by real people who really lived, who were really, who really believed that what they were doing was having an impact in the world. So not, you know, stylized uh, movie magic or Harry Potter magic, but but people who really believed they were um, they were doing something when they mm -hmm. cast spells or or engaged in rituals. And, and to that end, I was always interested in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which was this uh, order of magicians in late Victorian London. It was part of an occult revival. And uh, what was interesting about them was that they took basically, basically the Western magical tradition and tried to, um, rather than obscure everything, the way, the way uh, historical magicians usually uh, wrote their material down or, or kept records was to make it as obscure and as hard to understand as possible and to have lots of blind alleys so the uninitiated would not be able to figure out what was what was truth and what was fiction. Mm. The Golden Dawn really tried to systematize what was known to work and create essentially a school of magic where any any layperson could come in and go through these series of courses and become a practicing magician. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought, you know, I'd always, I'd always wanted to to take a deep dive into the Golden Dawn and figure out what was, what was it like to be part of this movement. And I, as I was researching it for this novel, I, I had the idea of, well, what if this stuff worked? And I wanted to take uh, Golden Dawn magic seriously, and uh, and build a novel around that. And of course, it's very, um, it's very low. Uh, wattage magic by by mm -hmm. what we're used to from film so a lot of it was um kind of impressionistic trying to make some sort of spiritual connection with something from another realm astral mm -hmm. projection uh summoning demons which maybe meant like noticing a particular flicker in the fire when you're you're casting these incantations mm -hmm. um but i i nevertheless wanted to really lean into it and to um Imagine if this stuff worked, if you really could change the circumstances of your life, even just a little by practicing this kind of magic, how would that, how would that change the world around us? Mm. And, uh, and I built it out from there. There were elements of Victorian society that I, I was very interested in. Uh, on my father's side, um, we're Anglo Jews and I, and, and my, uh, my, uh, ancestors I had just come over to England around the time the novel takes place so I wanted to mm. talk a little bit oh. about Jewish society at the time but I also wanted to talk about um, how how the, these organizations worked and how they functioned in society and then throw in a lot of bizarro elements and really kind of lean into the uh, fantastical elements. Um, it sounds amazing and you know the connection to Anglo Jewry is a, also a fascinating one. It's an interesting history a history of a country that threw the Jews out in the 12th century and then in the 19th century had effectively a Jewish prime minister um, mm -hmm. during Victoria, the literal Victorian age. Um, and yeah, it's a very, you know, it's a very rich history. I think about, uh, you know, Daniel Deronda as such a, you know, this fascination with the Jew and, you um, and of course, um, Benjamin Disraeli, who himself was a novelist, the prime minister of England who came from Jewish family, his name is Disraeli, and he was a novelist and his novel, his, his writing was a lot about the intersection of um, Jewish experience and the English nation. Um, so I think that there's a lot there to be unpacked in that, but also the concept of magic, because when we think about magic from the perspective of people living in a modern secular society and a science-based society, it sounds to us like literal hocus pocus, like something that you, you wouldn't think of more than you would consider Santa Claus or um, the tooth fairy to be real. But when you think again, back to the Jewish tradition, and when we're reading, for example, um, about Moses 
interacting with Pharaoh and producing these miracles and then Pharaoh's magicians producing the same miracles or the same wonders. They weren't miracles, but the magic was considered real in that tradition. And even by the tradition of the, the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, magic is considered to be a real thing in the Jewish tradition in a tradition that is at least in part rational, um, and that's an interesting idea because it shows you what magic really signifies, which is um, what kind of universe are we living in? Are we living in a universe in which there is more than the here and now? Is it a is it a material universe or is there a spiritual component as well? And that's the question it really brings up. And I think that's what keeps people connected to that concept of magic, of the spiritual realm, the spirit realm, um, ghosts and all that kind of stuff, because you think to yourself, maybe there is more. But how do you? How did you approach it? Like, did you come thinking um, through a lens of you know the faith, or through a, a secular science-based um, worldview? Well, I, I always try and approach these things um, as the people who lived. If, when I'm writing historical fiction, as as the people who lived in that moment would have perceived them, mm-hmm. um, and and. Um, Jewish magic was a lot on my mind because uh, it is a big part of the uh, the Golden Dawn's tradition that they it's it's very it leaned very heavily on um, classical magic from ancient Greece and and Kabbalistic magic. Mm-hmm. Um, those were, were two big elements. Um, I thought a lot about for a, a project I've since written about that that moment in the Torah in um, with Moses because by most reasonable definitions that was not magic mm-hmm. uh that either either the egyptian magicians performed or moses those were miracles because mm. magic um can only do what things that can be done so mm-hmm. you can make somebody fall in love with you with magic because mm-hmm. people fall in love or you can make money with magic because people make money but you can't turn a staff into a snake because that doesn't happen mm. and that's the kind of uh, interaction in the world that can only happen through um, through a deity, the uh, changing the the laws of the universe. And magic usually works within the laws of the universe. It purports to um, broaden and widen what is known, and 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 give you the tools to act reliably and um, repeatably with with these tools. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what Victorian magicians wanted to do. There was this idea in the Victorian period that science had reached the point where there was nothing more to discover, that we knew, we, we now knew almost everything there was to be known, and mm-hmm. that therefore religion would be dead. Right. And the occult revival was a response to that and, and saying, no, there's so much more to the universe than, than we can perceive with our with our sensory apparatus, that human mm-hmm. eyes and ears um, don't tell us everything that's there and that there are these secret methods of interacting with what we cannot perceive that work, that are governed by the same laws as physics and chemistry. And if only, and we can, we can gain access to these things by doing these things, even if we don't understand why or how they work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and it's, I, th- I feel like where we're looking today, it, it parallels that era um, and their view on knowledge, where today we we just intuitively as individuals sense that we have mastered the universe, at least knowledge of it, where that is so far from the truth, even from a scientific standpoint. Um, but I think the reason we feel that way is because we have left no room for, for real questioning of what else might be beyond the material. We have cut out the discussion, at least in the West, about any non-material uh, conception of of the universe and our place in it of existence, which is a really strange place to be in the world. So, you know, the famous Nietzsche's famous saying about God being dead, and maybe when he said it, it wasn't yet true, but it feels certainly true today, where it's just not a part of our our world whatsoever. Where in the Victorian period, I, I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine it very much was. It very much was an assumption that we live in a spiritual world that has a physical manifestation, which again is a, a Jewish idea of the world. Um, and it's also the world that Immanuel Kant envisioned when he talked about the limits of knowledge, where he's saying, yes, we can have 
a near perfect knowledge of the physical realm. But uh, beyond that, we cannot know anything. We don't know the noumena, but the noumena is out there. And I feel like that's what's been left out of the picture in the world we live in today. We have not allowed for any possibility of even what's beyond our knowledge. If it's not within the realm of our knowledge for us, it can't possibly exist. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that's what so interested me about, uh, about magic in this period is that what these Victorians understood is something that we've forgotten, which is if it's that, that our senses do have limits that, and that um, we can ask questions and maybe get answers, but what about the questions that our senses don't allow us to ask? What, are, what, is, what is there that we, we don't even think of to wonder about? Um, because our questions are, are limited by what we can understand, by what we can see. Um, but human intelligence is not the maximum intelligence possible. And it's not the only kind mm. of intelligence possible. And we always make the mistake of thinking that our brains somehow are mirrors of the universe rather than interpreters of the universe. Right, or rather than um, in some ways byproducts of the universe, but product of the universe. You know, we have this notion that we've mastered this thing with our minds, but we are a creature of this thing, whatever that thing might be, whether it's a, just a physical universe or a spiritual universe or anything else. But, um, and I think, again, that's what we have forgotten. That's a fundamental humility to think that I am a creature. And, mm -hmm. you know, back to the Jewish tradition, when you think about the importance of the Sabbath and ask yourself, why is it so important? What does it matter that the whole religion places so much emphasis on this one day? And the, the point that I've sort of arrived at is that it's a day to remember that you're a create, you're a creature, a, a product mm -hmm. of a creator. You have been created somehow or another. And that's the thing we seem to also from a moral standpoint, completely have forgotten in our culture. This is a culture of me. It's the culture of me and me alone. And that is, that's antithetical to being, to seeing oneself as a creature, because you, then you realize there is the other, there's the, the I and the thou. So, um, you know, the, I, I think just to bring it all back to the book, this is why it's so, it's so um, enriching to connect with these ideas through a story that brings them to you. I think that's the, the last real piece of this is to say, these ideas are fascinating, but when you connect them with, with them on an emotional level, because someone has put it into a story that's enthralling and rich and alive, then the ideas become a part of you where I think most of us wouldn't be out there doing the three, four months of reading about um, 17th century Amsterdam. Um, and again, that just to me, the, the value of storytelling is to be able to impart a sense of those ideas, a feeling of them, a flavor for them, which is more than you could even get in some cases by studying the ideas themselves. Yeah, that's the transformative power of, of narrative, I think, is, um, you know, I always, I always like to say that I, I, uh, I do the boring reading so that you don't have to, that, uh, right. you know, that I... I wade through a lot of material that can be very dry, and then I find what what's the what's the human element, what is the um, the character story that can bring these complicated ideas to life, and to show contemporary readers why why these past worlds or these past ideas uh, could be interesting and meaningful. And it's again, it's always through the prism of the character and what. Um, what characters want, what they don't want, what they're afraid of, what, what they aspire to, and, and that's what gives story power. A hundred percent. And I always kind of say a writer of any kind, a good writer of any kind is like a cow, where a cow condenses the nutrients of, a, of tons and tons of grass into flesh. And a good writer would do that with the material that, that you know, he's grazing for months or years, on, and gradually he's helping us put it all into flesh that's easier and better to consume for for us and i think that's exactly what's happening so um just before we wrap up like what's you've got this great book out the peculiarities um i think you know everyone listening should absolutely at very very least go check out that cover because it's awesome um, it's actually one of my my favorite book covers of, of anything ever and i think they did a wonderful job with it they yeah they really did and um and that is tachyon publications yes um 
And what's next? Like, what do you, you know, I'm sure there's an, there's a period of promotion and getting the word out about this book, but you know, you're talking about, you've done some comics, which is really cool. I, it's a genre that, and a format that I absolutely love. Um, are you continuing into the next book? Do you roll straight into another book or are you working in comics or is there anything else that's going on? Um, yeah, no. So I've, I recently finished a novel, which I've sent to my agent and, uh, we'll uh we'll see what happens with that um amazing it it um it's a bit of a weird project i decided i wanted to write a um a jewish epic fantasy um oh. that maybe I'm, I'm starting to uh be a little bit concerned it might be too zionist for the the current market <laughs> so we'll, we'll see what happens um and uh and you know, I'm in the process right now of formulating uh, what I'm going to do next, and it's going to depend on, on in large part, on how this book does in the market. I'm not working on any comics at the moment. I am uh, I'm the lead writer on a video game uh, hmm. called uh, Alliance of the Sacred Sons, and that's Ooh. sort of my big uh, side project at the moment, and that will be cool. uh, coming out sometime next year. And, uh, you know, there's uh, we'll, we'll see what else. So I'm usually able to dig up something. Amazing. So last question is, what are you reading? And what might you recommend others to read? Um, so I just finished a novel. And, and it is an unfortunate element of the, um, of the e-book reading experience that I can now mm. read novels and not remember who wrote them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But I, I just finished a novel called uh, The Very Nice Box. It has uh, two huh. authors uh, whose names I cannot remember, but it was, it's easily the best thing I've read this year. Wow. It, it, a, okay. um, it's a story of a woman who is a product engineer at a company that's very much like Ikea um, and how a, uh, a new boss comes to this company and just up to, uh, uh, overturns her life. But it's just stylistically wonderful. It's, it's really very um, amazing, brilliant and clever and witty and, and, and just a delight to read. So I highly recommend it. Great. We will, we will link to it. It's, um, I'm seeing Eve Gleichman and Laura Blackett. Yes. Uh, the very nice box. Them. Very, uh, <laughs> yes. That sounds very interesting. So thank you, David Liss. I really appreciate it. It's great to get to know you, to hear about your story. Um, I'm going to be buying the peculiarities right now, actually. It's going to take oh, two you. weeks for me to, for the book to get to Israel, because that's, that's especially today with the shipping jams around the world, but I'll be waiting for it. In the meantime, I am reading Benjamin Weaver and loving it. And um, again, just thank you for coming on. And uh, oh, well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you for joining me today on the Burning Castle podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley Rinsberg, A-S-H-L-E-Y-R-I-N-D-S-B-E-R-G. And follow the podcast on Twitter at Burning Castle and on Instagram at Burning Castle Podcast. Till next time.